Every day, life-saving surgery is carried out in the midst of war zones. But how does a doctor do their job when their own life is in danger? That's the topic of conversation today on Roaming, a podcast by Vodafone Foundation. I'm Natasha Dalton, Head of Engagement for Vodafone's philanthropic arm. In this podcast, we talk about technology for good, the power of human connection, and the way lives are changed by networks. Today, we're speaking with Dr. David Knott, OBE. David is a consultant surgeon for the NHS and author of the best-selling book, War Doctor, in which he shares his experiences of carrying out life-saving operations on the front line of the world's most dangerous war zones. Andrew Dunnett, director of Vodafone Foundation, spoke with David about dealing with fear, lunch with the Queen, and how he's using technology to train the frontline surgeons of tomorrow. Uh, well, David, it's a great honor to welcome you uh, to this podcast, and, and thank you so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are. And of course, you know, you've been at the front line of the pandemic here in the UK for 15, 16 months now, and I haven't seen you since that world before the pandemic. And I, I was just wondering, how are you? You know, how are things with you? Yes, it's very nice to see you too, Andrew, although we're doing it on a, a digital uh, 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 platform. Um, Yes, it's been very difficult, to be honest with you. Um, I think we went off with our foundation off to uh, uh, northern Yemen to run a course um, in January 2020. And of course, the pandemic started in March. And um, since that time, certainly everything was closed down. Um, I uh, volunteered myself to work on the intensive care unit um, just to sort of help out, but I, we were also continuing to do operations and continuing just really to do the emergencies um, <clears throat> because it was so dangerous for everybody. I often used to say, you know, from a war zone perspective, you always know who your enemy is, but in this c- case, we didn't know who the enemy was. And, you know, wearing PPE sometimes um, during operations, not being able to hear what your colleagues were saying and not being able to hear the nurse passing you the instruments and things was very difficult. And so that went on for quite some months, really. And um, because I was heavily involved in the first um, uh, pandemic, I sent uh, Ellie and the children went down to Devon before the uh, the lockdown, so to speak, um, because I didn't want to bring back COVID to home and infect everybody because we didn't know what it was all about. I really didn't know, none of us really knew how how terrible it all was. And then um, things got back to sort of normality again uh, over the summertime, and we started opening up uh, work for elective surgery. Um, and then, of course, we were hit by the second um, pandemic and uh, uh, or the second crisis. And this time I changed my tack slightly, and I was called actually by St. Mary's Hospital. And they rang me up and said, uh, David, um, we know you were involved in the first one, but would you like to volunteer and become a nurse (laughs) so I said well uh, I probably won't be a very good nurse but I'll be very happy to uh, to try and basically what it was is I became an intensive care unit nurse uh, for uh, two days a week doing 12-hour shifts and that went on for about six weeks uh, on the intensive care unit at St Mary's and I was absolutely honoured Andrew to have done that it was a it was a complete eye-opener an eye-opener for very many reasons uh, i think the main reason which i never really really realized was how how hard nurses work i mean 12 hour shifts on an intensive care unit in full ppe 
um, looking after ventilated patients uh, that were seriously ill with COVID um, and trying to get them through their dreadful illness um, was something I will never forget. And I'll never forget the, the nurses as well being so supportive to me, realizing that, you know, when I first started, I was pretty hopeless. I didn't really understand the ventilators. I didn't really understand the syringe drivers. I didn't really, un- I'd never given a drug properly before. But by <clears throat> by the end of my uh, six weeks, uh, I was a pretty, not bad, not a bad intensive care unit nurse. And I was able to put up syringe drives, able to give drugs on my own, able to ch- change ventilators on my own. And I really had a really enjoyable period of time. And I was, in one respect, quite honoured to have you know, put myself into that position. Um, and um, I, I learned a lot from it, really. I learned a lot about not only the things I do uh, around the world, but how wonderful it is to be part of a really tight team looking after the poor individuals that were on our unit. And David, one of the things that I, I know about you is your, your love of technology. Um, so when you mentioned syringe drivers and, and, and all the technology that goes into an ITU, and, and uh, we met because uh, your foundation, uh, I think Vodafone Foundation, were one of the first supporters of your foundation, and, and you wanted to uh, use digital technology to enhance your network of 200, 250 surgeons uh, who've operated in war zones. Um, how is the network, bearing in mind, presumably you haven't been able to see each other in the last 14, 15 months, and, and how is technology supporting that network to grow? Well, yes, it's a really good question, Henry. I mean, it, it had a huge damper, uh, dampening effect on the, fa- on the foundation, not being able to travel. And of course, what we were doing right at the very beginning was producing lots of videos and making videos uh, uh, readily available to the surgeon so that they could look to see what operation they could do and, and so on and so forth. And that's how we first uh, came together on creating um, these videos, these training videos. Um, I think that um, as time went on, it, it's so important to actually be in a room with surgeons that you're trying to teach, um, looking at things together and looking at the videos together and so that they can turn around and say, ah, but what about this and what about that and so on and so forth. And, you know, your sponsorship allowed us to to, to develop that uh, in a big way. And um, we um, have developed um, lots of training modalities based on that. And we still have uh, two weekly or twice monthly meetings whereby um, we're able to discuss cases and somebody in South Sudan can show us what they've been doing. Somebody in Uganda can show us what doing. Somebody in Syria can show us what they've been doing and Libya and so on and so forth. And we've developed this very big family of doctors who can all talk to each other all the time. And that was at the very beginning. That's what I wanted to create. And I think with the Vodafone Foundation, we were able to, as you know, to start off doing that. I think we, I think that the the big issue, which I which I always felt really, and in fact we did run a digital hostile environment surgical training course in December, where we tried to get I think we had twenty three countries on board with us, um, and we ran it from London, and we tried we spent three days um, with with technology trying to zoom it all over the world, but the biggest problem everywhere is um, the internet availability, is the bandwidth. It's the bandwidth for 
people to listen to us, to talk to us. And, you know, the big problem is that somebody in South Sudan had a burning question that they wanted to ask. And it, it sort of, hello, up, and that was it. You know, that was the end of uh, his, his uh, and I think that that's a real, real problem. Now, I've just come back from the Yemen, and I, my first trip to abroad um, uh, recently, uh, I came back about two weeks ago, and we were there for uh, two and a half weeks uh, running a, uh, a foundation course, but also operating with the surgeons right on the front line, which is where the foundation needs to work. And I couldn't speak to my wife because the internet was down. We couldn't get any messages out at all. And there was lots of anxiety, both from the home front uh, and the front of us all being, there's only four of us that actually went. Um, but not being able to, to even contact home was quite difficult. And at that, and then trying to get the message across to surgeons about what do they do with their cases without any internet or without any availability to, to discuss the cases is one of, I think, the biggest problems that we need to, 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 to um, overcome. But um, to actually be there with surgeons, to actually operate with them as well, and to actually take them through all their cases is, is what the foundation was all about. And I was delighted that, that uh, we were able to finally go out a few months ago, a few weeks ago. And many people, of course, will know you from your book, um, War Doctor, which, of course, uh, was a bestseller, um, uh, was um, in the windows of many bookshops across the UK uh, during during last year. And um, there are a number of things in there that you, you touch on a lot of emotions that although they were sort of 20 years of of your volunteering as a doctor in those in those war zones, but but emotions that are very real today. Uh, I mean, I mean, the first one that um, that really comes through to me is is the whole fear, you know. I mean, we, we've lived through a, a year of fear and anxiety, and um, when when I uh, you know read the book again, having having read it last year in, or in 2019 when it came out, but um, how do you handle fear? How do you, as a, as a doctor, you know, most people when a disaster happens or a war happens, run the other way. You run into it. And, and how do you how do you personally handle that fear, that anxiety? Do you ever get scared or not? I never get scared. Yeah, I, I do get scared. I mean, I have um, I ha it's funny. I think my level of of fear, um, it, ha it has to be something particularly very dangerous to put the level of fear up to a, a normal person's. I think really <laughs> sounds a bit strange to say, really. But um, I think that. I like going into areas um, simply because when I first did it back in, you know, 25 years ago in Bosnia, I was a very young man and I, I, I was very, um, you know, I felt immortal at the time. I felt nothing could harm me at all. And, and some of the things that I got up to there was I would never in a million years do them today. Um, but it, it was so exciting and my endorphins were flying around and, you know, I felt that I cheated death and, and whatever. And it gave me a different feeling to the actual fear because I think I was very naive, very naive over what fear can do for you. And I never had the fear sort of developed as the time went on. And the more I did it, the more fearful I became because I realized what could happen to people. And um, it seemed that it never really happened to me. And I often look back on the fact that well, why didn't, it happen, why didn't it happen to me? And where, everywhere I went, I was very close to it. And I, th I think that the only reason why that was is because 
over a period of time, you develop a certain savviness to be able to avert the risk factors that are that's being put on you. And you try and think about the what's happening to you at this moment of time and how you are going to try and avert that danger rather than paralyzing yourself with fear. Because if you paralyzed yourself with fear, then you wouldn't be able to do anything. And I think that's some of the reasons why some people get caught out is that they it's like when you you're you have so much going on in your head and so much going on in your brain that you just you just can't think. You cannot think what to do next. But I think thinking about it and working out, okay, well, I remember very, very, um, I was talking to Amar Darwish, who is a very, a very good friend of mine, who actually came with me to Yemen recently. And he was in Syria with me. And I said, well, what was the time where you were most fearful, Amar? He said, well, David, I'm going to turn the question on to you. Because I remember looking at your face uh, when we were in that safe house, just until the border between getting over the border from Syria into Turkey. And we had to stay there because the border was closed. And I remember looking at you under a bed uh, because we were, we were hiding under a bed. And he said, I'd never seen anybody change so much. Uh, you had the, the blood had drained from your face and you looked very scared. And I said, well, to be really honest, Amar, I think that was the most fearful time I ever had in my life because what was happening outside was that ISIS, who um, were around all the time in, in that day, in those 2014, realized that we were all there and were coming to try and take us away, like they had done with Alan Henning and all those people at that time. And there was a massive gunfight outside our uh, safe house. And I never forget this day how I just lay on the floor underneath the bed thinking, well, this really is it. This is going to be the end. And the Free Syrian Army fought with ISIS, and they were trying to protect us. And in the end, it was successful, the border was opened, and we just ran across. But that, I think, was realizing that, you know, you can push the limits so far, but sometimes, you know, it does get you. And I've just been very lucky, I think, really. But I think fear is something that you just need to be able to control. And once you don't control it, then... You know, I was I was actually expecting my fate to happen. I wasn't going to fight it. If they'd come in and taken me away, I would have, I'd have gone with them because I had actually crossed the fear level by that time. Mm. I'd actually crossed the level whereby I was so panicked that I was panicked under that bed. But I, if they'd had opened the door and taken me, I think then I would have just just gone with it because the panic had gone by that time and I was expecting my fate. So I think it's a, it's a certain sort of build-up of fear. Um, but if you can rationalize it, then you can sort it. If you can't rationalize it, then you panic. And then you panic, then it sort of dissipates when you know what your fate is. So when, when you were in that hospital in Gaza and there was a, an air, a bombing coming and you were mid-operation on a young girl whose stomach was hanging out, did you rationalize in that moment? Did you say, this could be the end? I'm happy if it's, I mean, that is facing the ultimate fear, namely death. Did you just sort of, did it go through in a millisecond or what kicked in? It, it's an amazing story. Everyone must read it in the book. It is an incredible, deeply moving story. And I'm sorry to raise it again with you, but it, it, it you know, we don't face that most of us. And, and yet you faced it and you found a way to, to handle it. Well, in fact, you know, I was, 
because Gaza has been obviously in the news very recently and, and so on. I, you know, I, I had been called to say, would you like to go back to Gaza this time? And, and I you know, was almost there saying, uh, I spoke to my wife, Ellie, and said, you, would you let me go again? She said, well, you've only just come back, but if you need to, you need to. Mm. And um, so I was reliving a bit of that um, time, really, looking at the, what I had done in 2014. And I think in 2014, one forgets really what that war was like. I mean, there was almost 2,000 people killed. There was 500 children killed. There was 11,000 wounded and seven. Uh, 100 children wounded and we forget really the the how bad it was and I think after having been there for three weeks or so and realizing you know this really is bad and I remember being in a bunker and listening to the bombs outside and and listening to the fact that this was a heavily populated area and being shelled in a heavily populated area is bound to be collateral damage no matter what you say but I think I'd got to the stage by 2014 that I was um, in a situation whereby I was absolutely fed up of um, operating on, on children. And in Gaza at that time, uh, I was very friendly with the paediatric surgeon. And I said to him, you know, well, they've got enough general surgeons, they've got enough orthopedic surgeons, they've got enough neurosurgeons, but they haven't got that many paediatric surgeons. And I've done paediatric surgery, and I've done it for many years. So can I team up with you? So we did. So we spent that time really about six weeks um, operating in a, in a paediatric surgical theatre. And I got to a stage whereby I was so distraught in child after child after child coming in with the most horrendous injury, injuries that um, when this little girl did come in and went on our operating table, I, I just felt that, you know, children have nothing to do with war, whereas in everywhere you go, what you deal with is children and, um, you know, 20, 25% of all your casualties are children. And in fact, when I was in Aleppo in 2014, uh, after the Gaza war, 80% of our casualties were children. And you get to a stage whereby, you know, you can't stand it anymore. And they told me that I'd have to leave the hospital because it was about to be blown up. And I felt, well, again, it's a, it's a bullying tactic. And this little girl on the table, I knew if I'd left her that she would have died on the operating table because she had a very low blood pressure and very low everything else. So it was a feeling in my head, really, a feeling, a, a bodily feeling that it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a sort of snap decision that I was going to stay there. It was a decision that had been building up and building up and building up that I couldn't bear it any longer. And in one respect, you know, if I if I was going to die with that little girl, then it would be all over. You know, I couldn't bear to see what was happening all the time. So I didn't mind uh, going with her if if that was the case, because I I had had seen so much, and I was devastated to see it continuing and continuing. That uh, I just made the decision. Right, I'm staying with you. Whatever happens, you know, if we can get you through this procedure, we'll get you through it. But if not, then I'll go. I'll go with you, and and that's how I felt at the time. I had no wife. I had no family. I had no parents. I had no family. Nothing at all. So it didn't really matter. What mattered to me was seeing that little girl on the operating table on her own, um, without any family around her. And I thought, well, I'll be your family for that, you know, period of time. So that's what happened. 
Amazing, David. And, and, and I suppose the other side of of the sort of emotion that you talk about in the book, which is fear, is is how do you handle suffering? I mean, you must have seen a, a hell of a lot of suffering in the last fifteen months here in the UK. And um, you know, h- how does how does that work with you? And how do you um, you know to use your word? How do you rationalize it? How do you contextualize it? Um, yeah, how, how do you handle that? Because again, you you know you finish you finish your day job where you are alleviating suffering and you're volunteering and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're working out whether you're going to go, um, you know, go to Syria, go to DRC, go to wherever it may be. You know? Well, it's true. I, I, you know, I, it, when I do work during the day, I mean, I do take those patients home with me at night, you know, and I sit there and I worry about them and I, you know, wake up in the morning and I phone up the hospital and see how they are and, and go and see them and, and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of uh, suffering, which, you know, you, you, you're, you're, my job is trying to alleviate the suffering. That's what I'm trying to do. That's that's what my job is. But, you know, if, it, if you didn't have the the passion to do it and if you didn't have the sort of um, feeling that... Um, compassion really for that patient you wouldn't really be able to do that job well and you've got to you know sometimes I take the emotions too close to home but that's that's the sort of thing I think about all the time with patients that I deal with Um, but sometimes you know if I wasn't there tomorrow my colleague would take over and if he wasn't there another colleague would take over but I think going to various places you realize that uh, you can only really do the tip of the iceberg to help people because there's a huge iceberg underneath the sea uh, which is full of suffering and you can only go and alleviate a little bit of it but even alleviating a bit of it is better than uh, you know leaving the iceberg to float with with all the suffering on board so I feel that um, you know if I do go and help people then I'm giving them some alleviation uh, alleviating their suffering which which um, I feel is the right thing for me to do and I, I can't get that out of my head to be honest with you that 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 is the reason why I do it there's no other reason why I put myself through some uh, of the hardships and the dangers of going to help people it's just simply because I feel if if I don't go then nobody else will go and um why don't I just go and do it? And, and that's the reason why. It's, it's at a cost. I mean, maybe you could tell colleagues that lovely story uh, of when you met the Queen uh, and you had lunch. Yeah. I mean, that, that uh, I, I think I heard that on the BBC, actually, that one. But I don't think it was in your book. But it's a lovely story of, of um, you know, going to places like this for three weeks. There is a huge emotional cost, but just tell the story how the the day you were back, I think you were having lunch with the Queen of Buckingham Palace. So from I think it was Aleppo to Buckingham yes. Palace in the day or something. It's... Yes, that's right. So I I just come back from Aleppo and I was there for six weeks. Uh, and again, as I said to you uh, just before, that eighty percent of the injuries that you dealt with were children, and I was sort of uh, I'd just come back and I'd come back on the um, Friday, and the following Wednesday. Um, I think my secretary had a phone call on the Monday saying that would I like to go for lunch with the Queen, and um, so I um, thought, well, <laughs> you know, why not? <laughs> and, and, and so the taxi pulled up to outside Buckingham Palace, and uh, 
uh, Ellie said she'd wait for me and then the red carpet came out and and I walked into Buckingham Palace and I walked then into this amazing place and uh, this beautiful room and I um, I just stood there and thinking looking around it was a beautiful beautiful room and compared to what I'd just come back from it was you know it's like going from hell to heaven it was the the it was such a difference and then all of a sudden the queen arrived and prince philip arrived and then we all sat around this table and uh, there was a couple of other people there as well and they what happens is which i didn't quite realize is that the queen then um, turns to the person on her right for half the meal and then turns to the person on the left for the other half the meal and so the person on the um, right was being spoken to and by this time i I started getting a bit of a panic attack or an anxiety attack, really, realizing that, you know, gosh, um, I'm not sure how I'm going to cope with this. And I didn't say a single word to anybody when I was just sitting there and was just looking straight ahead and um, thinking about things. And then and then as time was going on, the anxiety levels were going up because I realized we'd finished the main course. And then all of a sudden she turned around to me and she just turned around and looked at me and then said, um, and uh, you're David, aren't you? I, I said, uh, yes, uh, Your Majesty. And she said, uh, and where have you just come back from? So I said, well, I've just come back from Aleppo. And uh, she asked me then, what was it like? And of course, how on earth can you describe to the Queen what Aleppo is really like with all the, the disaster and the bombs and the bloodshed and the children with their arms and you know, damaged children. How can you explain that? So I thought, oh, I can't, I can't explain. So I just looked into the air, so to speak, really, and just looked at uh, something that was on the wall and I just stared at it. And then she asked me again, well, you know, what was it like? And and I just thought, I, I can't tell her. And then, and then all of a sudden I could feel the emotion building up and building up and my bottom lip started to quiver and I just thought I've just got to get out of here I can't I've just got to get out and uh, I looked at a door thinking I'm, I'm going to have to excuse myself I, I just got to go got to get out and um, then all of a sudden she um, put her hand on my arm and then um, she beckoned to the courtiers and she said where can you get the dogs and all of a sudden the doors opened and these four corgis <laughs> just sort of ran around this room and they went under our chairs and everything, and they were barking and sh- you know, and um, so the dogs were under our chairs, and um, I was sort of patting one of them, and then she went and grabbed a the silver casket on on the top of her uh, table, and then did the this casket, uh, this little sort of metal thing, and inside it were biscuits, and so she she looked at the biscuit, took the biscuit out, and he broke it, and he gave me half. And then she had the other half. And I was just wondering, well, do I need to, am I supposed to eat this biscuit? <laughs> but she said, no, 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 they're, they're for the dogs. <laughs> ah. And so, so, so that took it, that took it all. Everything started to disappear by this time. And I started to smile a bit and think, well, this is fun. And then, um, and then we started feeding the dogs. And then she got another biscuit. She broke that one, gave me half. And it was just like being with your mum. It was just like being with another human being that really cared for you, that really realised that, you know, that you didn't want to be here. You couldn't speak. You didn't know what was going on, that you were in a, in a terrible space in time in your head. That she just, and, and all we did was, you know, what do you think that one's called? She said to me, I said, I don't know. And, and so, all these names are coming out. And, 
and then this one's related to that one and then and then anyway that the finish off the uh the biscuits and that took 20 minutes to to uh give all the biscuits to the dogs and then that was the end of the meal <laughs> and she touched my arm and said she said well how is that i said well thank you so well much better than talking isn't it and, that, and then she she got up and left <laughs> Oh, so it was an amazing yeah, uh, story. I, I mean, um, <laughs> that, um, and, and it really answers my question that you know these things these things come back with you and you can't leave them. I, I once uh, listened to Don McCullen, uh, the very famous war photographer, um, talk about yeah. uh, sometimes when he comes back, it's like you're bringing body parts with you. You just can't leave it there. And it's very yeah. um, and and uh, you know very traumatic. I, I'm just conscious of time, David, and it's it's wonderful to talk to you. And the last question I, I really wanted to ask because I think a lot of people, again, it's it's directly related to the uh, the time that we're in. A lot of people are sort of asking about you know uh, as you move from that sort of the former rhythms of life to a a full stop and then a completely different life and then uh as a result of the likes of the simon sinek and others are asking much more about the why why do they exist as a company and i suppose when um when people look at you there's a sense that you've you know you've absolutely nailed your purpose um i, I was much amused in the book uh and and thank thank the lord that you're not an air an airline pilot uh judging by this you, you know your first passion was flying but the the account of the trip from heathrow to geneva is definitely worth a read it's absolutely wonderful and then i think mm. you were landing some mates in the in a helicopter in the lake district again which is absolutely uh uh you know tr tremendous um uh you know tremendous so 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 you know you went you went as a surgeon rather than a pilot. You could have done both. You probably still, I think you are a pilot, still uh, registered. No, I still do a flying instructor. Still do, yeah, 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 still, yeah, still do that. And um, did, did you find it or did it find you? Do you think in, when you think about surgery and being a doctor, I know your parents were medical, mm. um, but, mm. but do you think it found you? Uh, and then I suppose the other question, there's another phrase you use in the book or an article I read where you said, um, you couldn't have believed you'd become a public demonstrator, humanitarian, and running a foundation. This just wasn't part of your... So how did it happen? Yes, it's a really good question. I mean, I think you probably go back to... Uh, I, I've, I've thought about this, really, and I think it goes down to, first of all, of course, when, you, when you're a child and, and you're fat, you're, you're parents. And uh, you know, being a parent myself now, you know, the most important thing is the, the informative years of your, of your childhood and what, how your parents are to you and, and everything else. And it, it does have an effect on you. And my, looking back on it, I never quite realized until very recently that my father was a refugee too. He, was, he left Burma and uh, when the Japanese came in and he rescued his family and took them to a refugee camp where he was stayed for about uh, several months uh, before he was rehoused. And he always always uh, told me these stories about his do darings of saving people, especially his family, really. And then, and then um, he was the one that took me to see this film, this, The Killing Fields, which uh, started to uh, make me want to do humanitarian work. And then when, of course, when I went to Sarajevo, I realized that this really was my calling, that I'd never felt better in all my whole life doing something like this. And I looked forward to every year after that, doing something somewhere. And I suppose it, in life, it, the more experience you get, 
and the older you get, um, you can give back things which you never really realised you could before. And having had been very lucky in life and being having survived so many incidents and in war zones, but not only that, learning the you know, because war surgery is not normal surgery. War surgery is making very difficult decisions on very difficult patients, um, making the right decisions for that patient and their family uh, so that you can either get that patient through or you've got to make a very difficult decision that if you do everything for that patient, you're not going to have any resources for anybody else. And working those difficult things out and developing the experience and, and with experience comes, comes leadership. And leadership, I never really thought I was a leader, to be honest with you. Uh, but I think being in a situation where you've, you've tackled those issues, uh, you've got the massive amount of experience behind you, you can talk about that experience because you've been there, you've done it all before, you know exactly what it is. And the young people that you meet in war zones, they've not done that before, but you have. And so that then becomes a leadership type of role. And from the leadership type of role, then you develop what do you want to do with your leadership type of role? Well, you know, again, I was fortunate uh, and that Ellie came into my life and she said, you know, I, I, she said, well, you've got all this experience, David, use it, use it to some proper way of, of leaving a legacy for people. So it was her actually that spurred me on to create the foundation. And it was her that um, sort of almost set it all up as a, well, she that set it all up as a charity and it was her that got me going. But then I realized to myself, gosh, we can really do this. We can set up this foundation that can really go and change the world probably and in regards to surgery and difficult environments and everything else. Uh, and, and then learning that, you know, gosh, you can do that. You can change things, develops that on a better standing and it becomes more of a beautiful um, growing flower that you, you can do this and I think that's how the foundation just grew out of massive amount of experience good leadership as regards understanding how to talk to people not to rub people up the wrong way uh, be very diplomatic because when you go out to a war zone you've got to be terribly diplomatic you cannot uh, have any political views or religious views or any views you can't go in there as the the big man that's going to show the young men the surgery, because if you do that, you know, quick telephone call and you're taken out, you've got to develop their trust in a very careful manner. And that's what I've been able to do is develop this trust amongst people that didn't trust me at all. And then slowly, slowly build on that and build and build and build and build. And I think that's how I am in a war zone, but that's how I've been able to do it with the foundation. And of course, it's meeting people like you as well, Andrew, you know, right at the beginning of the foundation and with your Vodafone, it set us going. You know, it made me realize that, gosh, there are people out there that really want to listen to me. And I remember going to your Vodafone, um, the massive, beautiful building that you have, sitting there on that table, that beautiful table. And I'm thinking, gosh, Andrew does want to listen to me. He does want to listen to what I'm talking about. That's amazing. But it's all because to have the to have the strength and the realization that what you are doing really means something and i think then it's sort of really grown out of all that really and i think that is if i could give a message to anybody really it's um love what you're doing um but build on it in a in a humanistic way that you can develop something that really means something 
David, it's it's lovely to hear all of that and to hear your advice. And um, we've got about a hundred thousand people in the company, uh, many of whom will listen to this this podcast and and have heard of you. Um, how can they support your foundation and work if they want to? What's the best way of enabling them to do that? Well, we have a website. It's called the davidnotfoundation.com. Um, you can go onto the website. You can see exactly what we do. Um, we are running various courses. Uh, we have uh, communications officers. We have people that you can contact if you want to do things for us. There are so many people that fundraise, and it's a wonderful th- thing to do for us. There's so many people that run marathons for us. There are so many people that, that give money. And all the money that is given to our foundation. We, uh, when we go out on a hostile environment surgical training course, we have this mannequin, which is uh, uh, again sponsored by a big company that gave us money to develop the mannequin, which is a six foot man, which has all the operations on him. But also we develop, we, we take lots of, uh, of kidneys and hearts and blood vessels and intestines and all this sort of stuff, which are made of silicone. And they're very expensive. But I wanted to develop the very best simulation type uh, equipment that we possibly could. So when we do go to the darkest far Congo, um, people can come onto our our hostile environment surgical training course and realize, my goodness me, they are giving us the best they possibly can. Um, But these things cost money. And so, of course, you know, raising money for us is, uh, is, is what I think that if you would like to do that, we'd, we'd be very appreciative for it. David, thank you again for your time. Uh, thank you for all the incredible work you do. Uh, thank you for sharing some of those stories with us. And, um, uh, you know, all power to you in in, in the future uh, and all that you're doing. And I hope that the Vodafone Foundation and many of our employees can be part of that story and supporting the amazing work you and your colleagues do. So thanks so much for being with us. It's been a real pleasure, Andrew. And thank you very much indeed for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Roaming, a podcast by Vodafone Foundation. And a special thank you to our guest today, Dr. David Knott. His book, War Doctor, is out now. You can also visit davidknottfoundation.com to find out more about his life-changing charitable work. And for more information about how Vodafone Foundation is using technology to tackle some of the world's most pressing problems, visit our website at vodafonefoundation.org.